Today's episode is brought to you by Hanif Abdurraqib's A Fortune for Your Disaster, one of Publishers Weekly's most anticipated collections of the fall. Khadija Queen writes, A Fortune for Your Disaster proves that if you pay attention, black people have defined and still define themselves for themselves amid roses and dandelions, cardinals and violets, the blues of music and police uniforms, prayer and swagger, Kehinde Wiley paintings and too many funerals, the streets of bleak cities and the fraught histories of a kill-or-be-killed nation. A Fortune Fear Disaster is out now from Tin House Books and available from your favorite independent bookseller. And now's a good time to pick up a copy of Hanif's new poetry collection, as we will be in conversation about it, and hopefully this will air mid-October. Next up is my conversation with Xuan Juliana Wong about her debut collection of stories, Home Remedies. Juliana adds to the bonus audio archive a reading of her essay, Long Live Chinatown, Especially When I'm Gone. Did I create the myth of Chinatown, or did the myth create me? You can find out how to become a subscriber to the bonus audio material, as well as discover various other enticements to support the show at patreon.com slash between the covers. If you value these conversations but would prefer to give a monthly or a one-time donation, you can do so by going to tinhouse.com slash podcasts and click support. Enjoy today's program with Xuan Juliana Wong. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Xuan Juliana Wong. Wong earned a BA in creative writing from the University of Southern California and an MFA in fiction from Columbia University and was a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. She's also studied Chinese literature at Peking University in Beijing, worked as a translator for the Chicago Tribune and The New Yorker, taught English, produced commercials, and directed a documentary for Discovery Channel Asia. She has received fellowships from Yaddo, the McDowell Colony, and the Breadloaf Writers Conference, among others. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Plowshares, Narrative, Gulf Coast, and elsewhere, as well as garnering a Pushcart Prize and being anthologized in Best American Non-Required Reading. Wong currently serves as the fiction editor at Fence and teaches creative writing and Asian American literature at UCLA. 
Xuan Juliana Wong is here today to talk about her debut collection of stories published by Hogarth called Home Remedies, named one of the most anticipated books of 2019 by many and one of the best books of the season by L. Publishers Weekly, The Daily Beast, and New York Observer, the New York Times says of Home Remedies. In these tough, luminous stories about destiny, fealty, belonging, and heartbreak, every good thing comes at a price. Each character gets something he or she wants, but only by sacrificing something he or she needs. Vice says, Wong places herself in the school of writing clearly about weird things. Her stories have the immediate oxygen burst of Amy Bender, the just strange logics of Deborah Eisenberg, and the intense alien curiosity of Mary Gateskill. Her fiction is chameleon quick and only casually surreal, just enough to stay true to the weirdness of living. Finally, Nylon Magazine adds, Filled with characters who mirror the chaos and anxiety, exhilaration and despair, desire and fear of the world around them, Home Remedies offers searing portraits of millennial Chinese immigrants. Wang's shimmering words offer proof that even the most mundane of these lives have the potential to become something extraordinary, a great explosive talent. Welcome to Between the Covers, Xuan Juliana Wang. Thank you, David. I'm so happy to be here. So I want to start with the project as a whole of Home Remedies, because you've spoken about the collection, the 12 stories broken into three sections, as sort of mapping the 10 years of your life, your 20s. And I would I would love to have you orient the listeners to how you envision Home Remedies intersecting with you and your experience. Mm. So I began writing the first stories um, in my early 20s, and that was when I have wanted to know what made a family, how families come apart, and what I wanted from my family. And also just, I I think that was just something I was obsessed with. So I wrote stories about that. And then in my you know mid twenties, I was in love and was disappointed and had lots of um, you know interesting escapades. And I wrote love stories. And I think by my early thirties, I was more um, I had bigger questions about life, and I was trying to answer, or at least attempt to answer those. So. Family, section one, love, section two, mm-hmm. and time and space, section three, Yes, become in a, in a sort of a way a, a, the trajectory of you. Yeah. Even though none of the stories are autobiographical. True. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. The stories of Home Remedies are, are centered around both Chinese and Chinese-American protagonists, and they're often intergenerational, yet it feels to me like the collection is doing something different that it's sort of operating on different terms that make it new and fresh than perhaps the most familiar tropes we might expect from literature of immigration to America in America. And because it feels so surprising and unpredictable in the sense that as I'm reading these stories, I don't know where they're going, which feels like one of their great strengths. I don't feel like the familiarity that I I might expect 
it made me suspect that maybe you were aware of certain overused narratives mm-hmm. um, or stereotypical stories that maybe you were pushing against something mm-hmm. um, or avoiding something altogether mm-hmm. in immigrant literature mm-hmm. in English. And so I wanted to know if that was true. And if that was true, what maybe you could characterize what those things you were either trying to avoid or, or mm-hmm. to trouble. Interesting. I feel like maybe especially since I've started teaching Asian American literature recently, so I've had to read a lot more contemporary Asian American literature. And I do feel that something is changing. Something is just the stories that people are telling, the characters that are coming up. It's I haven't read these before. They're not the stories I read when I was young. Um, certainly, I think, I just feel like I had a very weird life. And I don't, I never saw that in writing. I never read a story about it. And I never saw it, you know, in a movie. And I didn't purposely write against that trope. But I just was just trying to be truthful about what I, the stories I wanted to tell. Is there a, is there a trope or tropes that you could articulate that right. are unsatisfying to you as a reader, but that maybe you, you see too, have seen too commonly um, mm-hmm. before this generation of writers? I feel like I'm not concerned with making my parents understand me. You know, I'm not concerned with like defining who I am against who they want me to be. Mm-hmm. That's just not my story. So I'm, I'm not going to tell that story. Well, you've said that the book, you consider the book after Yi Yi and Lee and Mm -hmm. after Ha Jin Mm -hmm. with regards to capturing an unrepresented contemporary moment. Mm -hmm. Could you unpack that a little for us? Um, Like why these two writers um, that you're working under in a sense or or extending from your your experience of these writers? Well, Ha Jin is really interesting to me because he... um, Basically, he went to school in the same university as my parents in the same town, Harbin, when, uh, where, I, where they lived before they immigrated to the States, a little bit before me. And when I first read Waiting, I felt like I was communicating with some part of my parents or something. Mm-hmm. I had a different channel into them. And in a sense, he's always stayed kind of my parents to me because they're the same oh. age and they were yeah. over the same place, you know. And I think Yin Lee is an ongoing conversation I've been having. I really admire her work and I feel like it's changing and becoming really different and really, um, this is like an intellectual conversation about literature I was never able to have in my life with any, any person that I grew up with, all, all my family. And I think I was able to have that by reading her all these years. Mm. But I do feel so completely different and I can't, I don't know where it is that like that separates us, but I know that the way that we see the world and the way that we're processing is completely different. And I admire her, but I also really don't think we're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the most generative and compelling aspects of Home Remedies for me is is the specific moment in time that you are sort of dilating, mm-hmm. um, because we get tensions and disconnects between generations, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, something that you often expect in, yeah. in immigrant literature, both within China, we get these tensions, uh, within America, we get these tensions and between, uh, generations in China and America, but because you chose a period in, in China's recent history where it experienced both 
an unbelievable amount of growth and an unbelievable amount of wealth generation, mm -hmm. the distance between one generation and the next and the difference of ex the distance between or the difference between the experience of one generation to the next is extraordinarily immense in perhaps an unparalleled fashion. Right. Um, and I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about that metamorphosis mm -hmm. that s many of these stories are capturing right. and the distance that's creating between just one generation to the next because of the, the rapidness of the change. Right. When I came to the States, um, I was seven and my mom had been here for two years. And I think when I left China, it, it was still very much like, I remember there was no more television after 10 p.m. Like the television was over, mm -hmm. you know, and then I got to the States and then we went to we went to Disneyland immediately. Like, yeah, I just felt like <laughs> this kind of change was it. You know, if you talk about the uncanny or surreal, like that was surreal. And I I feel like there's something about not growing up with your parents at a really young age and not being able to see them, which is also, I mean, it's immigration, right? That happens to people. So I was separated from my mom for two years. And I feel like it, it, it gave my, me, like crystallized my memory. I just remember things. And I feel like I remember the way I felt all the time. And, you know, being sensitive and, and going through all this change, it made me really focus on that you know and i think for my um what it gave me is i think going through these changes and uh living through um you know as you said like such up like such hills and valleys of experience and wealth and i think it gave me two problems early on um i think i had a really early existential crisis and um and then i felt like this i felt paralyzed by empathy for everybody hmm. And I, what was the existential crisis? I remember, um, I think I was at Disneyland or something. I, my, we were obsessed with going to Disneyland. Um, my mom actually always says that's the reason we moved to the States because she went and she was like, I need to bring her here <laughs> because this is, you know, it's that's wild amazing. and so nice, you know? So I remember, um, yeah, like we were at Disneyland and I, I would, I thought like if everybody, if all if all of this is for nothing, like if we're all going to die anyway, why live? And I had this mat panic, hmm. and I felt like because what I experienced in life already before that was just so. It was just there was a lot of difficult, like a lot of trauma and a lot of it was a lot of fun and also really um, warm, but just a lot of aching feelings and um, people that you don't want to leave behind and all the stuff. And I came here and then it's just supposed to be, I'm just supposed to be happy because I'm in this happy place. And I felt like I really, tr I had a question like, why, what is life for? Yeah. That was my first problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you're, you're describing the sort of uncanny and surreal juxtaposition of the Beijing of TV going off at at 10 p.m. and then coming to the United States and and Disneyland, but there's also what you're capturing is the the metamorphosis of Beijing itself. Right. So when you go back in the, your yeah. 20s, yes, it's not that Beijing. No. I, I was there 20 years ago mm -hmm. in Beijing, and I did not recognize anything that you wrote about in really? yeah. in Beijing now. Yeah. 
And it sounds like that's similar to when you were seven and when you were in your twenties. Right. So I was curious about it. So mm -hmm. I, I went to uh, online to China Daily, and I and they had this. I'm just going to quote a paragraph that I think captures this really well. Imagine a group of people with more members than the whole population of the United States, a group that does not have to worry about loans or mortgages as their parents take care of all of that, a group that has only seen prosperity and a group that is determined to have the best the world can offer. Meet Chinese millennials, a group that will not only reshape China, but also the world. Chinese millennials, those born between 1981 and 1996, number more than 350 million, or over 25% of China's population. They're the main drivers of the country's surge in consumption, with spending by those under the age of 35 accounting for 65% of total consumption growth. Two-thirds of all Chinese passport holders are millennials. Over 90% of them have a smartphone, and more than half of all luxury goods purchased by the Chinese are bought by millennials. They are transforming every sector of the economy, from travel to education. Millennials were key catalysts of the total $115 billion spent by Chinese visitors on global travel in 2017, and those born after 1990 increased their spending on international travel by 80% in 2018. In education, one in three foreign students in the United States is Chinese, and many are paying full fees. Although Chinese millennials share characteristics with their Western counterparts, they are a different force altogether. They were born during the one-child policy, so became the center of attention for both parents and grandparents. Their family spared no effort in providing them the best education possible. Their financial needs were taken care of, and education became their sole focus. Moreover, they were born in a period of exponential growth, a time of endless opportunities and optimism. And I, I think that when I read that, mm -hmm. that's, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. It but, sounds amazing. Yeah, but it's also something you're capturing. Mm -hmm. um, and when you said at the beginning, I don't want to write about how my parents feel about yeah, my life. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that sense when I read, read that description of China. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not a Chinese millennial in yeah. Beijing, mm -hmm. but there's also this sense of like um, the future is now, mm -hmm. which I would also describe as one of the feelings of reading Home Remedies, mm -hmm. the future is now. I feel like, you know, I, um, after we immigrated to the States, I went back to China every year. I don't think I ever missed like a single year. So I would always go back and stay with grandparents or something and, uh, you know, had my parents around. But mm -hmm. in my 20s, I was my own person. And that's when I met friends. And that's what, that's when I kind of ex came into um, who I was and experienced life, you know, as a, an adult person in China. Mm -hmm. Um, I do feel like when I hear that, it sounds, it sounds like there's, it, there's more nuances to that. I believe, um, well, I just ran to be fair. I just randomly picked that. I, I, yes, but I think it's, there's a lot of truth to it also. Yeah. Well, I mean, I liked the way you've described your experience living in China as in your twenties, because it feels like it's also an inversion of a stereotype. Mm -hmm. You said you felt more free to be whoever you wanted to be while mm -hmm. living in China, much more so than living in Los Angeles. Yes. And, and it, in light, in that light, you also said that in LA, it didn't feel like anything extraordinary would happen to you, but that in Beijing, it gave you permission to be any kind of person you wanted to be and to live an interesting life. I, I wanted to hear more about that experience mm -hmm. of being in, in 
Beijing and, mm-hmm. and the way you just, des- I love the way you describe that experience mm-hmm. because that's the way most like, that's like the Mar- American mythology, right? Mm-hmm. That you're using to describe China right. against the American experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas most Americans would pride themselves in this, in that being the experience mm-hmm. of being in the United States. Right. I mean, growing up in the States in, um, I grew up in the suburb in L- outside of LA in LA County. Um, the school was majority, um, it was like half Asian, half Hispanic. We knew who, where everybody was from, whose parents were from what, you know, it was very, um, and I was very aware that I didn't know anything. You know, I'm actually not from, I feel like most writers, contemporary writers, um, working right now, their parents immigrated to the States to attend college. So here, and so that gives them a kind of status into the society. I I feel like for the people that arrived like I did in the early 90s, a lot of us, like my parents, they never got to go to school here. Mm-hmm. They didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. And it was very, I felt like very terrified my entire life. You know, I was just trying to do the right thing and trying to... Mm-hmm. Um, not embarrass myself or like, you know, help them not embarrass themselves. And I felt very, that made me feel like I was just going to keep living this life and eventually be an accountant or something. And then when I went back to Beijing, I felt this freedom. I felt like no one expected me to do anything. And I, maybe it was also because I never felt I would just never I've never felt special at all in the States. I was like just mm-hmm. another immigrant daughter just trying to get good grades so I can go to college. And then in the you know, when I went to China, I feel like it gave me this and we, I don't I didn't deserve it, but because I spoke English, I could I could teach English, I can translate because I just naturally translated my whole life from English to Chinese and back for my parents. So and that let, allowed me to see lots of things. And then I felt like I could walk into any building and not be afraid that people wouldn't like I wouldn't belong there. I could just ask. And mm-hmm. I don't and I feel like only that has to do with finally being in a place where everybody looked like you. And also what we're just what you just said, like this place had changed. This mm-hmm. place was full of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Is it? really true that you ended up in China partially because Amy Bender refused to write you a recommendation for MFA program until you had done more living? Yes. She said two years. Two years of doing something else yes. other than going from your BFA to your MFA. Yes. She, <laughs> I, I cried. I was very upset. Yeah. And how she, bold of her. Though. And she says she doesn't remember this, which is really, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you look back and feel grateful for I it? I feel I feel like I owe those I I owe everything to that decision. Hmm. Um, I would be a completely different person if I hadn't. If you'd gone straight into an MFA. If I'd gone straight into an MFA. Huh. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Xuan Juliana Wong about her debut collection of stories, Home Remedies. Well, let's talk about some of the stories that engage with this generation of Chinese millennials. So tell us a little bit bit about Days of Being Mild, Mm -hmm. how that came to be and and what it's about. 
I wrote Days of Being Mild, I think in one sitting. Um, I wrote it, uh, I had moved back from um, Beijing to uh, go to grads, go to MFA. And I wrote it during the first week of class. Wow. It just came out of me. And I think I wanted to write this feeling before I forgot it. This feeling of being young mm. and stupid. Hmm. And it's it's being young and st- stupid, I guess, or, <laughs> or drifting, yeah, drift, but also yeah. affluent mm-hmm. too. Right. Um, I feel like to me, it didn't seem like affluence was the part that was that made them um, feel good. I think it was the freedom. No one was watching. No one is making you do anything. Yeah. And I think um, I was actually really thinking about like Ryan McGinley's photographs. Um, I, I read like I saw the kid. The kids are all right. Like on the internet, I think in Beijing. And I went to so many photo shows. Like I really like contemporary photography. And I think I just looked at people's faces and I just, I'm kind of shy. So I usually don't look at people's faces. So I felt like all these photographs and like giving me ideas of different scenes and different situations. And, um, I compiled these kind of sketches together Mm. And but I I felt like the feeling of uh, why would you want to leave this place? Is it still is you know because the big question of my gen- parents' generation and their enduring question of their life is sh- you know how do I leave China and how do I stay in the states? And I think in this time the question is is it still worth it to leave? Should I leave? Right, and the main characters hiding that he's going to eventually potentially go yeah. and follow the expectations of his family to Louisiana and work the, right. oil, the oil fields yeah. that is that his family yeah. owns. And yeah. even, you know, even like as a reader, I feel like, or as like somebody who knows what who's driven through Louisiana, I'm like, that's not better than your life. No, <laughs> than is making his yeah. music videos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alexander Cheap, he picked and presented this story mm-hmm. as part of Electric Literature's recommended reading series. And, and he said this, I remember when I read an earlier draft of Days of Being Mild back when I was on the faculty at Wong's MFA program at Columbia. Finally, I remember thinking, the Chinese wealth youth quake that became the subject of so many trend stories seemed always to talk over the lives of the people described instead of letting them speak. But here was a story from inside that moment. And then later, Chi says, Yes, your father in Beijing could buy you an oil rig in Louisiana and an American visa to go with it. But what if you wanted to be a DJ or a photographer or a model or a porn star or some combination of these? What if you had no talent but your urge to make art was an act of rebellion and valuable to you anyway? And most poignantly, Chi poses the question, what is it like to enact a life as an artist according to Western standards and become illegible to yourself and your peers, much less your family, and, and yet still love it? Lastly, he, he points out something that I love and I think is true about the collection at large. He says, Wong brings her failed 
filmmaker and his self-consciously posed circle to vivid life in dagger-cut prose, allowing their contradictions and self-destructive impulses to flower in front of us and their catastrophes become the real art performances they are capable of. So I, I know that was a long thing that I just read, but this idea that the character could be becoming not only illegible to his family, but to himself and yet love it. Mm -hmm. It feels like a thread that runs through this book mm -hmm. for me, because there's a line in days of being mild that goes, we've read Kerouac in translation. We are marginally employed and falling behind on our filial piety payments, but we are cool. Who's going to tell us otherwise. And similarly, um, this echoes in other stories. There's an exclamatory line in the story, Future Cat, which follows a second-generation Chinese-American who's not interested in revisiting her parents' sacrifices. And it's just, she just, want, she just wants to live, exclamation point. Um, and it feels like the collection is in, sort of insisting upon the, the present moment or the singularity of it, even though that present moment has the has what's going on between generations and between situations. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's the immediacy, immediacy of it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if that rang true to you. And if, and if you could talk mm -hmm. about maybe ways in which, if it does, the ways in which rendering that mm -hmm. as a writer. I do think it's impossible to escape your past and where you come from. And it's impossible for a group, you know, the Chinese millennial generation um, maybe those of us that were born before 1987, everybody remembers what it's like to be a little bit poor. There is some memory. And then to not worry about it again is mind-blowing. And I feel that when I try to write about the present moment, I want the present moment to be real because I experience, I feel like my experience of life is that way. Right. I'm propelled forward and I find I I find everything really interesting and I want to be able to say something that hasn't been said before in a fresh way. But also I can't pretend like I'm not attached to this history or this family or these circumstances that have made me who I am. And I think that's true for every one of my characters. So I put them there and then I want them to... I don't know, behave, like interact with each other and like throw things off course. And then I want to try to figure out why. Well, thinking about legibility and illegibility, I wanted to talk a little bit about language mm -hmm. before we talk about more stories. Because when you moved to the States at seven, you, you've said that you didn't know how to say any words in English, even when you knew what they meant. Mm -hmm. And this made you very aware of language. And you eventually forgot Chinese mm -hmm. and then relearned it mm -hmm. in your early 20s, working as a translator in Beijing as a result. And you said that having two languages is one of the greatest gifts a writer can have. For example, that there are already a lot of stories innate in how one language says something versus another mm -hmm. language. And I was hoping maybe you could talk more about that. Oh. The advantages of, of second second languageness mm -hmm. and the stories embedded in in the differences between the two languages that you speak i was telling somebody about this earlier i think my understanding of people and situations so much of it has to do with i think i most like my biggest my first move in the writing a descri description is 
I translate it into Chinese and translate it back into English because it's always like very, it's something else, you know? It's like another way to get to the same idea. I felt, I feel like I love to read badly translated Chinese books. Hmm. Like I read, I can read, I can read in Chinese, but it's slow. So a bad translation is, it it keeps kind of the idiosyncrasies of the Chinese, but just into English. And I love that. I feel like it's like a, it's like a really it's poetry like on accident all the time yeah and and i could hear the chinese echoing into it i i find that like i write that into my stories as well like characters ruminate on that and i think living in between i don't i feel like i can just easily switch back and forth between these two languages and it gives me um i mean it gives me more like uh, sometimes an interesting turn of phrase, but I think it also, because I don't exist in one language alone, I feel like I can, I don't know, disappear and reappear or like be a spy. I feel like I'm always like eavesdropping on conversations or um, people are always asking me for help because I think I have the look of understanding and uh-huh. I don't know, um, I don't know how other people can... I just I, w- I wish everybody had it. <laughs> I feel like you'll fall in love deeper, you'll sleep better. <laughs> Everything your life is better. <laughs> well, you just said that you will take English and translate it into Chinese and then back into English. Yeah. And you've said before that you like to translate boring phrases in English into Chinese and then back again into English. So, is that a a revi- an actual revision process for you to elevate language in English or to um defamiliarize or make interesting language in English that feels like it's too flat? Mm, I don't think it's a conscious move on my part, but I find myself doing it all the time. Mm. Or like, I'll just be walking around and be like, oh, hug. And I break it down into Chinese. And I'm like, huh? you know, like, and I'm, I just think like, oh, that's yeah. two movements, you know, or like, um, I'd like to think about the characters, you know, and like, just like what big pictorially they mean and like why two components mean this word. And then if I write those two components out in English, does the same idea come to the reader? Usually Mm -hmm. it does. Mm -hmm. Or idioms or just, you know, the um, kind of uh, the really bad poetry that, you know, my uh, family will say, like for laughs, I'd like to translate it back. And Mm -hmm. it's like, always I know it's always makes this language richer and I think also I am it's really interesting because I'm just a little bit bad at grammar <laughs> I'm just forever I and now I I feel like it's, it's never going to get better I I think I come to English from this language and I bring some kind of baggage and it's never, I'm never going to like gallop as fast as the the next person. Yeah. It's a different way. And I think maybe because I'm aware that I will never be able to write that kind of perfect, crisp, you know, I don't know, cerebral prose that I, I really admire. Um, I'm writing something else. And I think the, the, what that is, is, this in-between two-language consciousness. Well, I picked out a little section that I think is probably one of the ones you're referring to when you say that your characters ruminate on language also. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind reading a little excerpt, um, it's on page 32. More than anyone, 
Sarah is the woman who helped us all get over our shyness with and general distrust of white people. With Sarah, we learned many of her American customs, like hugging, and that took months of practice. Arms out, touch face, squeeze. We learned that Americans are able to take certain things for granted, such as the world appreciating their individuality, that they were raised believing they were special, loved, and that their parents wanted them to follow their dreams and be happy. It was endlessly amazing. We also learned English, realized how different it was to speak Chinese. We didn't used to have to say what we meant because our old language allows for a certain amount of wiggle room. In Chinese, we can ask, what's it like? Because it can refer to anything going on, anything on your mind. The answer could be as simple as a one-syllable men, which means you're feeling stifled but lonely. The character drawn out is a heart trapped within a doorway. Fear is literally the feeling of whiteness. The word marriage is the character of a woman and the character of fainting. How is English, that clumsy barking, ever going to compare? We've been listening to Xuan Juliana Wong read from Home Remedies. You've also said that you, you want to write stories that you could describe to your dad, mm-hmm. uh, who doesn't read English, mm-hmm. and for him to be able to enjoy the stories that you're describing. And I guess I wanted to hear more about how you see your dad as an audience of sorts, Mm -hmm. how that might change or inform the way you tell stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm, I feel like my dad is somebody who is not very patient and he appreciates a good story though. Um, I used to, I think this is maybe relatable for a lot of people my age, like you've run out of things to ask you to to talk to with about your parents with your parents and i want them to feel like i want to talk to them i just have nothing really new to report and mm-hmm. neither the day so i used to summarize stories that i've read you know from grad school on i would just uh you know i would just summarize like a mary Sh- uh, maggie shipstead like her story that I just read in a magazine. And then I would feel his reaction. And because I'm verbally telling these stories, I know how important it is to grab an audience and to keep them interested. And I feel like in my storytelling, I always hope that I give, there's an interesting person going through something interesting and it's kind of funny and mm-hmm. a little bit sad. In the end, something happens. Mm-hmm. And I just wish, I feel like if I can get that, then my dad would listen to the story. Yeah. He wouldn't, you know, start cooking or something. Yeah, I really love that. (laughs) Uh, Well, I wanted to ask you about your name and the origin of your name, Juliana. We talked a little bit about this before. Just since since we're talking about languages and two languages, Juliana isn't the name you were you were born with, which would be Wang Xuan. Mm -hmm. Tell us tell us how Juliana became became your name and why for you. Um, My so my Chinese name had a. a really nice story that I was told in my life that my mom visited the forbidden city when she was um, pregnant with me and she saw like a, like a pavilion and it was snowing. She felt really good when she saw this pavilion. It was really beautiful. And then she, um, the pavilion was, um, 
something xue xuan. So like it had that word in it. He was like, oh, that's such a nice word. Like I feel at this moment, I'm going to name my daughter this word, mm. right? And you know, the word also has its own meanings. So I was given this story growing up, and I felt pretty good about my name. And then uh, I came to the states, and I went to second grade, and no one could pronounce this name. Like everybody was,、uh, you know, and then. From the person that worked in the in the library to my teacher and everybody around me, so she recommended to my mom that I get a new name, and we didn't know any names. So my mom went to the back of the Chinese English dictionary and read all the names out loud, and there weren't that many. I think there were only like twenty <laughs> to fifty. I don't remember. It didn't take long. Yeah, and she read it twice, and I picked Juliana because it was the longest. Huh? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, before we leave the question of of words and what they represent, one interview asked you an interesting question. They asked you what words you despise that have been used to describe your writing, and you answered, "I don't despise this word at all, but Chinese feels like the most used description in reviews of my books. Yes, the characters are Chinese, but I don't believe their race or nationality is the most important or interesting quality about them." And in my mind, I I link this to something you you said in in a podcast,、mm-hmm. but I don't know if I rightfully connect these two things. But you said, I used to say my writing wasn't political, but now I think that writing about Chinese people as people, without making any radical statements about a culture at large, is itself political. So, Sophie, maybe you could. Right. Talk about either or both of these、mm-hmm. sentiments.、Um, I feel I feel very strongly about that.、Um, I. I think maybe because I've always felt like writing was mine, because、um, it was the one thing that my because my parents can't read it. I mean, my mom can, but I made her promise not to. It's just something that it's it's what I'm expressing something real about the world as I see it and the things that I believe in. And I think that to because because I'm from China and because that these characters are often Chinese. I don't feel like I have any responsibility, really, to be making, be being a political,、uh, like a like a outspoken, you know, political figure or like a intellectual on Chinese China China U.S. relations. And I think because I do I I I do think that it is. On purpose that I do this, that I don't feel like I need to make that statement. Well, the word that I think about a lot in relationship to this book is the word home and、mm-hmm. home remedies,、uh, because this isn't, as we've talked about, a typical book of immigrant arrival in the United States,、um, which means home is less clear, and people also aren't staying in one place in this book. There is a lot of movement,、mm-hmm. um, you know. Chinese that come to America but then return to China,、mm-hmm. or Chinese Americans who move to China,、mm-hmm. or the newly rich Chinese who become so illegible to themselves that maybe suggest that you could lose your own home without leaving your home.、Mm-hmm. So I guess before we leave the generation of uber wealthy Chinese、mm-hmm. millennials,、mm-hmm. um, which I want to do because I don't want to give the impression that the collection is only about about.、Yeah. The wealthy Chinese millennials, because it definitely is not. I did want to talk about one story about a group of rich Chinese teenagers who come to the United States nominally with the purpose to study 
And when they're here, they commit a violent act and are able to use their privilege to escape consequence and flee back to China. And you've said both that you wanted to write the story with the coldness of Brett Easton Ellis Mm -hmm. and also that the reaction to the story was super polarizing, Mm -hmm. that there were people who were angry at you Mm -hmm. for writing it. Mm -hmm. And I really want to hear about the story on its own terms Mm -hmm. first or second, but also your thoughts on why people reacted this way Mm -hmm. and how they reacted and whether there was a deliberation or a concern for you about Mm -hmm. including it. I love, uh, I loved reading less than zero when I was, I think it was, I was in grad school when I first read and I love the flippant interviews he gave. And I, because I'm reading it from the future, it was just interesting to me that, you know, he got to talk about, he got to write about these people and people doing despicable things and everybody liked it, you know? And I felt like in my, uh, experience and what I see in life like this is this is exactly this is exactly what's happening right now and I was surprised when I submitted it to magazines or I gave it people didn't think of it that way you know they're like oh this is so these kids are so nasty they're like doing terrible like it's it's like offensive almost and I wanted I wanted I wanted these Chinese kids to be able to be so bad that it it would if it would make it would offend people but also i wanted people to be delighted by them the way that you're delighted by a Brett Easton Ellis mm-hmm. uh character and so i thought about it and i just i just doubled down did you change the story and make it more i feel like outrageous? before the violence wasn't so um the violent act wasn't so explicit. Mm. And then afterwards I was like, no, I'm just going to double down. Yeah. So the polarizing response wasn't necessarily from the Chinese or Chinese American community specifically. I don't think they have, I don't think I'm being read in the Chinese American community. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there's any like gender hypocrisy? Like that Mm -hmm. Brett Easton Ellis as a guy can do that and not, and, and people enjoy it. Perhaps, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I really enjoyed writing that story. Yeah. And I feel like anything that I'm really enjoying or it makes me cry or something, I know that it's real and it. I need to keep working on it. So when this story came out, even um, when it finally got published, I was really happy. I was just hoping somebody would read it and feel something. Mm-hmm. Well, you teach a class at UCLA called the Bad Kids. <laughs> And you said you've waited your whole life to teach this class. Yes. So what is this class and who are the bad kids? Mm. It is a Asian American, uh, Asian American literature seminar in the creative writing department. I think I'm very new to academia, so I'm not, I feel like I'm so incredibly earnest and, um, I picked, uh, eight novels, uh, one collection of poetry um, there's a graphic novel, and I wanted the criteria was that all these kids are quote unquote bad. And um, there's uh, Wakey Wang's chemistry, should, like uh, I don't know, uh, Incendiaries, um, I, uh, Ling Ma's Severance, mm-hmm. and I feel like uh, oh, Diana Nguyen's um, Ghost of, and more. I just can't remember off the top of my head, but 
it, the accumulation of that class was so interesting because in the beginning, um, everybody was, uh, I mean, I feel like the class was had a nice title, but they didn't understand why these kids were bad. I was mm. like, well, somebody is disappointed in them in every story, right? In every yeah. book. And um, are, are they conventionally successful? Um, every character, are they conventionally successful? Or like, are they, um, what do they feel guilty about? What, the, what is it that they um, want from the world that the world is not getting giving them? And I think that this kind of writing didn't exist when I was just when I was, you know, in my teens, I'd read everything. Hmm. I uh, didn't know what to read. So I would go on live journal and look for like older people who lived in New York, you know, and I would just try to see if they were looking, they were reading something. Hmm. And I remember there was like, um, this one badly translated book called Shanghai Baby. And it was like the bad girl manual of the time, like, and she was like, you know, drinking and going to parties, but it still felt like a it didn't feel real. It felt like it was an exhibitionist mm. act or something. Yeah. And then um, when I started to read Haruki Murakami, I also thought like um, these were um, the first time that I vaguely saw myself, you know, s reflected in literature only because we were the same race, but mm -hmm. not even, you know, really culturally completely different. And I think now... Um, I've, I told my mom that like when I was growing up, I looked around in my uh, when I looked around my classroom, I was thinking well, one of these kids, these, you know, wannabe gangsters like this guy that doesn't like that sleeps all day. Like he's not going to become the model minority that everyone says we are like this guy is not going to make it, you know, <laughs> and then and I thought like, well, one of us is going to start writing movies and we're going to start being rappers or like you know making cultural content and only when you become when you're part of the culture are you really part of the cultural consciousness and i think um when i by saying that i wanted my whole life to teach this class i really meant like i was like waiting for all these bad kids to grow up to make art so i could read it and talk about it yeah and it happened well let's pivot to some stories where we're not talking about those super affluent. Mm -hmm. You've you've said that some of these stories are based on working class relatives that you knew growing up, who you felt their s stories wouldn't have otherwise been told, mm -hmm. and that you wanted to make their stories visible. Uh, talk to us about a story in the collection that it somehow, in your mind, is connected to people that you mm -hmm. you knew growing up, working class, and and um, how how we would see them in it. Man, so many of these stories. Maybe we can talk about like White Tiger of the West is set in Changchun where I lived when I was younger. And um, what happened in that story is uh, modeled very close to what I did in my life, which is that my parents had this kind of uh, the, um, my parents and their friends had a kind of makeshift hostel a situation where they would um we had a lot of beds in our house and you know if people needed to stay for a while we would go and pick them up and like take them to their babysitting job or something and i feel like i spent a lot of time with adult strangers who like left their kids at home who 
were really nice to me and told me about all of their life, like all of the things that they were wishing, they hoped to get from this, like from moving to the States and, you know, no longer being a doctor. Mm -hmm. And, and I saw that with my own parents and I feel like there's no way that I can ever judge these people. Like I can never treat somebody that works at a motel that behind the desk in a motel, like he's not a person, you know, because I think like I, I knew them. They were me. Like I, there's no difference. And I wanted to write that. I wanted to write a character because so many of my mom's friends that I grew up with, you know, work in motels because it's a job that you don't need to speak much English to do. Interesting. So in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Xuan Juliana Wong about her debut collection of stories, Home Remedies. White Tiger of the West is actually my favorite story in the collection. And um, it's about a boy who grew up in a forgotten industrial city in China who reinvents himself as a Qigong master to escape a dreary life at the local factory. And after he sort of builds up his reputation through various Qigong-related feats, including eating glass, he travels to America with the hopes of having a, a different life in America, given his um, change in status around his reputation as a Qigong practitioner. But the Chinese Americans who come out to see him present his Qigong, instead of being impressed, they're kind of disgusted by it. And that's true for most everyone in the story, but a little girl. And she's a Chinese immigrant child. And this act of eating glass by this Qigong master captures her imagination. So it feels like at the same time that our Qigong master is failing at his dream his American dream uh, and failing to find home in America, even among fellow Chinese in America, the, and especially among the fellow Chinese in America, the, tra the trajectory of, of the girl has changed mm -hmm. um, in, in a, seems like a significant and fundamental way as if she's found a taste of home in this perhaps fake chi Qigong master. It's sort of as if, his dream becomes her reality or of, of where she came from. Mm -hmm. It's like, I think of that as the home remedy. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if the home remedy is real, mm -hmm. uh, but I love that she sort of gets a home remedy. Like her real encounter with this possibly inauthentic Qigong master is an authentic encounter of home for mm -hmm. her who now lives in America. I guess I, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. that. This um, cause this story is just amazing. It's both really funny and it's super heartbreaking at the same time. It's funny. Cause I, I, when I, I wrote it, I wanted to write about Changchun because I, it's also the movie that the farewell, I mean the movie, the farewell that came out recently is set I haven't there. seen it yet. Yeah. It's set in this town that I grew up, this place. And is it I, a good movie? I think it's a good movie. You do. Okay. It's very real. Okay. I feel like they exist in the same universe. It's all these. Anyway, I, I lived in Changchun. Um, my, my parents dropped me off there when they had to immigrate. My mom immigrated. So I was just living with my grandma and grandpa. And I felt like a wild child at that point. I remember, um, I was just thinking about this. I can remember all my clothes were like covered with like snot. I was like in first grade or something. No one, there was like not enough 
you know, my grandparents weren't used to taking care of a little kid. So I was just there, like in the snow, running around, like through like glass bottle factories and like just wow. um, doing whatever kids were doing. And I didn't even know, I didn't even really know the kids. I just got there, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember like being there, I was always afraid that I felt like there was a big, like a, like a hole in the, like a manhole that was broken in the middle of the street in front of my elementary school. And I, I pictured it getting bigger and bigger. And I would be worried about that people would ride their bikes into it. Like I wake up at night and be scared of that. Mm. And I felt like that, I can't prove that it happened or not. There's no one to, to give me any other context to my life back then. Mm. But I feel like Changchun is a place I always felt like anything could happen. Mm. And I, Maybe also because um, my grandparents, as with every old person of this time, practiced Falun Gong. And uh, I used to see them doing, like, catching energy and, like, moving it around and stuff all the time. And, you know, they came to the States and they were doing it. And then suddenly, um, you know, the the government said, like, it's bad, right? It's, mm-hmm. It was bad. Like, they weren't taking their medicine or whatever. But uh, suddenly it was out. No one did it anymore. And I felt like they had such loss. Like, it gave them so much purpose. It gave them, like, a belief that they were taking control of their lives and that there was something magic in the air for the first time. And I felt like I was trying to get at those. I, I remember these feelings, like, and I wanted to make them into a story, as I say, about an interesting person going on an interesting journey. And the where that story crosses with the little girls, I felt like I wrote that line and I was like, that's the second half. Like, I, I'm going to write, like, if um, any time of a, uh, in a story of an extraordinary man, there's a woman. Right. And I, I just wrote that into it as I was drafting it. And I was like, oh, now I have to do the second half to see where it goes. When you say that uh, Falun Gong ended up being bad and they yeah. needed to stop. But isn't it, I mean, tell me, uh, is it possible to be doing Qigong without doing yes. Falun Gong? Yes, that's right? definitely, yes. So yes. They, could have, they couldn't have continued doing Qigong? In the more general sense, they believed in Falun Gong because there was it was like a pseudo Buddhist. You know, mm-hmm. I'm scared to talk about it. Actually, um, I feel like um, people take it very uh, seriously. Yeah, but um, I think I, you know, I, I saw a lot of people practicing Qigong my whole life in China, and um, and lots of people claim to be like grandmasters in Qigong. They can like heal you and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about Falun Gong that was seems so magical. They worship the the um, Li Hongzhi so much, and I wanted to. I think that was like some power that everybody would want to have. Like mm-hmm. especially if you're a nobody, right? Like why wouldn't you want that? Yeah, of course. I wanted to return maybe obliquely to your your saying when someone asked you which word do you despise and you said you don't mm-hmm. despise Chinese but yeah. but that people f- focus on right the identity being Chinese because what's true about this story and also true about a lot of the stories is that the narrative friction is rarely between a Chinese person or a Chinese American protagonist and someone who isn't Chinese yes um White America is not really foregrounded in this collection for the most part. Mm-hmm. We get the awkward interaction between a Chinese actress and an internet star who comes to the U.S. and stays with a recent immigrant mm-hmm. from Beijing whose lifestyle seems exotically bohemian to her. Mm-hmm. And in another story, we get a Chinese 
rich Chinese owner of a factory who tells one of her poor employees that she'll make him wealthy and set him up for life in America under the condition that he marries her daughter with Down syndrome. Um, and I just wondered if this was by design that you wanted these stories to be between different generations or iterations of Chinese and Chinese American mm -hmm. identity versus a story of Chinese immigrants uh, up against the larger mm -hmm. white American culture they're entering. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's enough stories about that. Yeah. There's enough stories about immigrants coming, you know, into friction and conflict with white America. And I think, yeah, I just didn't want to, I felt like it was a, I already heard that one. Well, when I think about the girl in the, in the Qigong story who has a real authentic transformative experience from something that's performative mm -hmm. and perhaps not entirely authentic, it made me also think of your essay, Long Live Chinatown, especially mm -hmm. when I'm gone, that you wrote for The Cut. Mm -hmm. In that essay, you asked the question, did I create the myth of Chinatown or did the myth create me? And sort of like the girl in, in The White Tiger of the West, you are formed and transformed by something imaginary or imagined. In this case, the show Beijingers in, mm -hmm. in New York, mm -hmm. which became indistingu indistinguishable from your actual memories mm -hmm. or part of your actual memories. So talk to us a little bit about that mm -hmm. um, because you do play with this, um, the real and the imagined a lot mm -hmm. in this collection. Right. Um, talk to us about this show in relationship to your self-conception. Watching that show was one of the um, only things I remember uh, being really excited about when I first got here because I didn't speak English. I couldn't understand television. So we only we we got these VHS tapes from the local Chinese video store and watched it as a family. And it was about uh, Chinese people in New York. So um, I feel like um, the star of that television ser series Xiangwer is uh he's like Tom Hanks now he's like really famous but back then he was a kind of a new and like a rebel you know mm -hmm. I remember um I think I mean I wrote about it in that essay how I saw that what his his life and the things that he was able to experience were so different than what my dad and his friends and you know were able to experience because there was the real pressure of just living, you know, of making money and doing any job, no matter how much it's boring or it's below your station, you mm -hmm. just have to do it. And I feel like this guy in this TV show managed to escape that. And in my mind, I thought you had to be in New York for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, not anything else, you know, and then he, um, I think, so in a sense, it, I think that myth of Chinatown created me because I feel like it drove me to want to live in New York and it drove me to want to pursue art, um, to try to try my hand at it, even if um, I had no expectations of it working out. I just felt like I saw somebody do it. So maybe it's possible. Hmm. Um, also, Mott Street in July, the first story um, in the book, which is kind of, I feel like that essay I wrote for the cut was, a was all the leftovers that didn't make it into the story. Oh, really? Um, and I was, I, lo I was writing this story living in this apartment 
and um, in Mots on Mastery. And I remember thinking this is the second part of that white tiger in of uh, the, of the West of the West story because I felt like there's as little kids you always want to believe that your parents are more than they are or at least I felt that way and I really wanted to think that there was something I missed or something I didn't understand that because otherwise I pity them too much a part of me did hmm. it seemed like what they were doing seemed like too much sacrifice knowing that you just get to live once and I was afraid that they were unhappy or that they would um that I was I that I was responsible somehow for that happiness so I think in um both of these stories it's kids looking at parents and mm -hmm. either you believe that they're they are more extraordinary that they are some possess some form of magic of some mm -hmm. kind or you believe that they don't and you need to turn away from what they want like you need to turn away from them yeah so well i would love it if if listeners could hear a little bit from the white tiger of the west mm -hmm. in the province of heilongjiang in a town north of harbin and just east of chichihar lived a boy named tu tu as a child he was short and sickly with the skin color of peeling eucalyptus bark most of his youth was spent in a forgotten industrial city covered in hard city snow, and it appeared that Tutu was on his way to becoming just another knitted cap on a dreary snowy street. His father was a coal miner, a thin, muscular man who looked permanently charred. He returned home twice a year, and each time he would ask his son how old he was, as if he hoped the boy would magically skip a year or two without his knowing. In trying to make himself more interesting to his father, Tutu yearned to be good at sports. He did not excel at badminton because he was too short, or at soccer because he was too slow, and volleyball not with hands that small. Classmates and teachers had no problem not noticing him either, and thus, with his ordinary face and mediocre grades, he was permanently assigned to the second-to-last row in every class. And so the calendar moved on, and Tutu inched his way toward manhood, quiet and visibly disappointed with his meager lot. In an effort to cheer him up, his well-meaning mother, Tsai Xia, regularly read him newspaper articles she thought he would find encouraging. Look, she said, here's a photo of a girl around your age with no arms, playing piano with her feet. Her feet. It says she has to hold chopsticks with her toes. His mother had lived a difficult life full of compromise and fear. She was grateful for a model's apartment and a job ripping tickets at the zoo. She had no great expectation for her son, only that his life be composed of a little bit more joy, a little less hardship than her own. Tutu only stared intensely of the photo of the grinning piano-playing armless girl. He stared and ate sunflower seeds, cursing his luck for having hands to eat them with. Then, a few days before his 18th birthday, Tutu happened upon a mass of people huddled together in downtown cluster of shops. It might have been a demonstration for a local contortionist, a comedian, or perhaps a salesman selling knives that resharpened themselves. But on this afternoon, there was only a scrawny boy on stage. The boy must have been even younger than he was, shorter, less handsome, and yet he held the audience captive. 
Ten years ago, I was struck with polio, the boy yelled, and the doctor said I would never walk again. But look at him standing, a man in the crowd yelled back. I taught myself how to heal, how to stand up, walk, and even run. I learned how to do the impossible through the strength and wisdom of Qigong. It can't be, the crowd replied. Hear my story, the boy said as his assistants handed out pamphlets. I can teach you to cleanse your body of its ailments. Join me and you can improve everything you are. Tutu felt as if the boy were looking straight into his eyes. They said I'd never walk again. The crowd applauded and cheered. And yet, with the teachings of Qilun, here I stand. The boy posed like a movie hero. He jumped up and down, and the crowd roared with applause. As the throng rushed towards the stage to grab the brochures, Tutu hung back, watching his strong legs in the shadow of the ground. He turned around and began to run. He ran past the glass bottle factory, the soap factory, and the steaming tofu snack stalls. He ran past his elementary school, past students jumping rope, old men playing chess, and women scrubbing laundry on rocks. He ran as if he were being chased, all the way back to his apartment, because he couldn't wait another minute. He ran up the stairs through the front door and into the bathroom. There, he slammed the door and stared at his flat, pimpled face in the mirror. There were several selves that belonged to him, existing simultaneously. There was a self he knew he was a self he wished he was, and a self he was going to be. All three possible tutus presented themselves to him, and he realized he could choose beyond them, a rebirth, like the boy who told people that he shouldn't be able to walk, or the mother who lifted a two-ton truck off her child with her bare hands, the ordinary bespeckled clerk who dared to ask a goddess from the heavens for a kiss, and the general who led his troops bravely into certain death. These myths and legends always began with an uninspiring nobody. In other words, somebody just like him. Tutu could be an ordinary boy. He could get a job at the local factory and be like one of those men who walk out of the doors every night with a small bottle of liquor knocking against his chest pocket. But as he looked at himself, his face grew hot with what he knew must be the earth's energy. A vision appeared before him, brilliant and clear. Tutu was going to master Qigong, too, but he wasn't going to do it as a follower. Something amazing had to happen for that. Something incredible had to come true. If Tsai Xia was still alive today, she might not even be able to recognize her son, Grand Master Tu. His appearance, with his smooth skin and thick caterpillar-shaped eyebrows, is one of cultivated tranquility. His unextraordinary face, suspended above a lotus, had been printed on hundreds of laminated posters. His followers say Grandmaster Tu is the perfect balance of fox and weasel spirits, and is so completely engulfed in qi that his body's vital energy could be described as equal to that of a large flame. We've been listening to Xuan Juliana Wang read from Home Remedies. So some of your stories move beyond this question of myth and imagination and go fully into either the fantastic like Mott Street in July with the fish generation and the carp invasion or into the science fictional with Future Cat. And the Kirkus Review, I think, captures this when it says, use the uncanny to parse generational misunderstanding and the surreality of contemporary life. And I suspect a lot of people might 
throw out the words magical realism, mm-hmm. even though a more appro- that's more appropriately tied to a, the mm-hmm. Latin American tradition. So I guess I just wondered what, if anything, you would connect it to. Mm-hmm. Is there something you would connect the the fantastical elements to, either in Asian American literature or mm-hmm. storytelling in your family or otherwise? Mm-hmm. Or that's a, such a great question. I don't know. I guess I'm a student of Amy Bender, the first first person uh, that taught me how to write the surreal in a real way, and it is a move that I have, and I I think I like to use because I feel like real life sometimes, you know, those stories were written later on in um, in the progress, the process of writing, and I think that those are the stories that made me realize that real life was real life became surreal hmm. and there were so many inexplicable things that continue to happen that happened to me and to people I see and I don't believe that there is not nothing else beyond reality mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah but I don't know I don't know if I'm following a tradition to answer yeah. your question but it's interesting that Amy Bender comes up again, that she she was pivotal for you going to China instead of your MFA and, yeah. and also around this, which may, which brings me to the question of other writing advice that stuck with you. You've you studied with a, a, mm-hmm. a ton of really luminary uh, teachers, mm-hmm. Alexander Chi, Amy mm-hmm. Bender, T.C. Boyle, Victor Laval, mm-hmm. any anything that you find reverberates with you as you mm-hmm. write or, or particularly around home remedies that you feel like there was advice that you got from teachers that would be mm-hmm. interesting for other writers listening to hear? Mm, I think Donald Antrim was extremely influential to me. I really um, enjoy reading his short fiction. Also, I enjoy everything he writes. I think he... Um, is always telling us to describe things in concrete details and to put a character in repose before you have them go off into backstory. And there was just some moves that I did to kind of keep um, keep reality in place while extraordinary things are happening that Donald Antrim definitely, he just described it really well. And I can, I feel like mm. it's something now I can, I can use. Um, uh Tobias Wolf um also um I don't know what I'm not really sure what he uh I don't know if he taught me anything in person it's just maybe because I've been I was such a fan of his before um studying with him that there's something always so emotionally wrought like there's so I feel the intensity of the emotions in the story. Like he's not afraid to ever um, hurt himself and hurt the reader, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think that's something that um, I take and I, I try to do. And is there a a place to start with Donald Antrim for that you would recommend for people who haven't read him? Mm. The place to start, maybe, uh, Start with the memoir. Okay. So you get a setting of who he is. Yeah. And then uh, the uh, the short story collection, the Emerald Sky. The okay. Emerald, Emerald Pearl in the Sky. I'm so bad. 
Well, we mentioned uh, future cat at the very beginning of the show, just the exclamation. She just wants to live um, as an example of a character wanting to focus on the now and the future versus the past. But you, you've talked about an app called future me. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, that you used you use this app to write to yourself in the future. And I guess I want to hear about this, this <laughs> app, both on its own, but also if it plays any sort of influence or role in future cat right as well i think yeah i um so future futureme.org was uh when i first got my own uh dial-up service it was a website that you could go to to post date emails to yourself so um it was really exciting because uh you would write something that would come back at first i would do it you know for a month later and just to see if it worked and it did work so then i started to write myself um, emails into the future every a lot in during like a every night before my birthday or before the new year or like mm-hmm. before graduating from high school and I would post date it um, five ten years fifteen years oh into the God. future and I think maybe I was always obsessed with the future I was always um, I just wanted to um, I think the conceit be- be- behind future me the story I mean future cat the story is that. I always feel like I can look back in time and feel and I can make sense of things that's happened. Um, I feel that way as like in my life. And also writing is like that. It's putting distance, putting time between some something that I can't seem to um, explain in the moment or something that I can't really make peace with or understand in that moment. And then through time, it's always be- getting better. So... Maybe I'm always looking forward and then I hope the future will come back and tell me it's going to be okay. Mm. So I wrote all these emails to myself in the future when I was... And they were, were they this way, reassuring emails to your future self so that you were fulfilling your own wish that you'd be reassured? I feel like they were always, they were actually just very, very, uh, I I asked myself if I was going to be a writer. You know, I, I tried to like, uh, I, I there's a lot of... um. I feel like I was like reprimanding myself and a lot of them feel like you're, you're like hanging out too much and you're not actually doing what you said you were going to do. So I hope you're, you know, you still make it. Um, I think I didn't realize that I had written these future me emails until I, like, I think I got one right before um, my uh, reading in LA when the book came out Hmm. and about something like not related. And then I searched through my email and found all of them. Um, I don't know. I, I'm somebody that is very anxious about the future mm. and it, it's, it troubles me. So I'm trying to make it better. Well, it must be gratifying to get an email where am I going to be a writer <laughs> when your book's coming out? Yeah, no, that was amazing. Yeah. I feel like I still can't believe it. Well, you've said that if you had written home remedies in Chinese, it would be an entirely different book. Yeah. I want to hear about that, but I also... In light of that, you were recently on a Chinese language radio show right. in Southern California, and I was curious how it differed mm-hmm. than the typical publicity you've been doing in English. Right. Like what, how the conversation and how you in that conversation was different um, because you were speaking in Chinese right. to someone speaking in Chinese. Yeah. Um, I think um, I, I, th- I feel like in Chinese, I'm about... 80% of who I am, something is lost. I don't know which part of it. Huh. Uh, I think I'm a little less funny and a little more earnest 
I can't tell. Also, my voice sounds exactly like my mom's <laughs> voice for some reason, but not in English, only in Chinese.、Mm. Um, I felt like. Because I grew up listening to that radio station, I woke up in the morning and I heard it all the way until I got dropped off at school. Like the people on those on those programs are just—I feel like I know them, and they were talking to me my whole life. And I felt like、um, I know that I wouldn't—I know this book is not going to be translated very unlikely into Chinese,、mm-hmm. um, and so I felt like it was kind of my responsibility to say. To just represent somebody that makes art for a living, that not I'm not successful. I just tried, and I you know I'm given an opportunity, and I feel like I'm always.、Um, I mean, I I feel like something happened to me、um, in high school where I had a really amazing、um, English teacher. And I remember every year I would go visit her, and I would tell her like, "Oh, now I'm going to grad school, and now I'm a, you know, I'm a writing a story about this." And and she told me, "You're so lucky because your parents didn't ask you to do anything else. There's so many more talented kids I grew up that you grew up with that I've taught. There are people that are very talented, and they didn't. They're now they're like a veterinarian in Hawaii or something.、Wow. And she was like, 'You got to do this because you're loved.'" You're res- you're you're responsible to like keep working harder or something. I don't know if she said、yeah. that, but that's how I felt. That's how I took it as.、Yeah. And I feel like because I'm able to speak Chinese, like I feel like I sh- it's kind of I wanted to talk about it on this radio show that I know so many people listen to, and I wanted to just be honest about this experience. And it's like I'm like I wanted to feel I wanted to be to show that I was grateful to have had the opportunity.、Mm. Do you think part of the reason why you're eighty percent yourself and you're not as funny、mm-hmm. when you described earlier that you wanted to write in a way where you weren't caring about what your parents think? Yeah, and so and in a way you're writing、yeah. you're writing in a language that they they have less access to. Right? Do you think that's part of it that they could turn on the radio? Yes, and then all of a sudden, it's your family and their friends can、right. all be listening. Yeah, I didn't tell anybody that to listen to it. I was like,、you、oh,、didn't. yeah, no, I didn't. I just <laughs> was like, I will just go on there and try to be myself, and then that's it. Yeah,、um, and I, I did it. Yeah, are you happy with it? I don't know. I didn't listen to it. We haven't listened to it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So while we're talking about language and audio and identity, you have this really. Interesting story about your audiobook. So I was hoping maybe you'd share about Home Remedies, the audio version, and your enthusiasm for、mm-hmm. it, and why. I think、um, this is the most, in my opinion, I think this the Home Remedies audiobook is the most amazing audiobook I've ever I could have ever imagined、um, for myself. There's twelve actors reading the twelve stories. They are all、um, Chinese of Chinese descent,、um, and I got to choose them all based on、um, they've recorded、uh, parts of my stories at home. And the most exciting one was at first when I knew that this book was going to be made into an audio book. I wanted my friend、um, Lawrence. He's a、um, He's like a actor in L.A. He's a show on Netflix right now,、um, and he, I, I asked him to send an audition for this role, the Four Die to the Max, because that story is set、um, in the 
high like around the high school that we grew up I felt like he was in that story mm. and I couldn't picture anybody else reading it so that was amazing and um it was his first audiobook and then from there there's a lot of other people that I kind of chose by name too um like uh the person who reads days of being mild is um somebody that I uh I think I used to follow on live journal or something just huh. another Asian Chinese American actor in LA um there's just people I was just looking I was looking for the feeling that I wanted from each story and I think it's like some are better than others like I think Matsuin July um Elaine her name is she read it exactly the way that I I wanted it to be read like of a girl who's grown up telling me the story of um something that happened when she was young and I think I've never I didn't think it was possible that there could be like 12 different Chinese American voices like reading these stories. Yeah. Nobody had a weird accent. Did just... you say they re recorded at your house? No, no, they no. recorded their auditions at their houses. At their houses. Yeah, so, so... I got to it was like a, they were just people out there reading a piece of my story. Yeah. And and so they're all doing it in their homes. Yeah. So their their home remedies are there. Well, like that was the addition, and then they went to the studios to record it, and then I had to clarify all the pronunciations. But the producer who put it together, I felt like it was just above and beyond what's necessary. You know, it just it made it such an experience. Yeah. And I'm like, like I I think it's real. I'm so grateful. And I think the listeners would appreciate having a different voice each time a new story starts too. Yeah, yeah, because they're so different. Yeah, so I was I was going to ask you if your next book would be a collection structured around the decade of being in your thirties, mm -hmm. but I read that you are contractually obligated to for your next book to be a novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, is that true? It's true. Yeah, can you talk about your novel project um, and, and or mm -hmm. good or bad things you've discovered about switching forms? I I have been thinking about my novel a lot. I've been um, really afraid of it um for a long time and then recently i don't know something happened and i feel like um I, i've i've said many times before like i think i never i never expected to have to really publish a short story collection and i um was so happy that it happened that before i turned it in i really tried to put everything in it I felt like if this is the last thing that they're ever going to publish that I know how to write, then I want it to have all of the elements that I love about short stories. And I want to show like, you know, all the different ways that these stories can be told. And I wanted them to be really different from each other. And then after I did that, I feel like I sat with that for about a year. And then I'm like, oh, I really want to, I want to like, I, I feel like settled enough to write a novel. And I think, um... I've had a lot of failed novel attempts in the past, um, and I always think the problem was that maybe part of me thinks a novel should be like a like a very detailed uh, scroll watercolor painting, you know, the kind that used to hang in um, 
like off, like in like important places growing up. And I remember every time I saw those paintings with the perspectives and I would think every day I can come to this painting and find something else I like about it. I would notice mm-hmm. that there's a little like fish jumping out like near that yeah. like rock. And, you know, I would notice that these two people are sharing a secret and, um, and there's all those details would be real at all. Like it would be super flat and the perspective would be a hundred. And I think I was trying to write novels that way. I thought I had to bit paint everything. It had to be like Anna Karenina or yeah. nothing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what novels were. All right. And now I think, um, it's sometimes it's good to just, for me, it's going to be good enough just to deliver this truthful feeling, you know, um, so you have an idea. Oh yeah, I'm I'm writing. You're writing it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The feeling of that kind of complicated life is enough for me rather than having to draw out all the details all at the same time. Yeah. Well, I really look forward to it. Oh, I'm so glad. Thanks for being on the show today, Juliana. Thank you so much. This is an incredible experience. Talking today to Xuan Juliana Wong about her debut collection of stories, Home Remedies. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Damon, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength community radio from Portland, Oregon found at kboo.fm. More of Xuan Juliana Wong's work can be found at xuanjulianawong.com. Juliana also adds to the bonus audio archive a reading of her essay, Long Live Chinatown, Especially When I'm Gone. Did I create the myth of Chinatown, or did the myth create me? This joins supplemental material by Brandon Shimoda, Ted Chang, Lily Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Boris Gander, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at SoundCloud.com dot com slash Barbara Browning.